Welcome to the Legally Speaking Podcast. You are now listening to season six of the show. I'm your host, Rob Hanna. This week, I'm delighted to be joined by James Croyston. James is the director of Founders Law and was previously their senior counsel. James completed his BA in psychology at the University of Manchester before his LLB and LPC at City University of London. James has experience as a solicitor at Field Fisher Waterhouse LLP and counsel at Caitlin Holdens Limited, Quorum Legal and Ignition Law and Stone Step AG. He was the legal director at IIM Capital and Tribe Wanted Limited. So a very warm welcome, James. Thanks very much for having me, Rob. Ah, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Before we dive into all your amazing projects and experiences, we have a customary icebreaker question here on the Legally Speaking podcast, which is, on the scale of 1 to 10, 10 being very real, what would you rate the hit TV series Suits in terms of its reality? I've given this a lot of careful thought. (laughs) I would say it's definitely a 10 in terms of getting food from street vendors and drinking copious amounts of coffee. It's a to one slash zero when it comes to driving fancy sports cars and going out one afternoon on a whim and landing uh, an international conglomerate as a client. So let's average it out at five. There we go. Fair. And I think you gave a very good justification of the pros and cons. And with that, as I like to say, we move swiftly on to talk all about you. So to begin with, James, would you mind telling our listeners a bit about your background and journey? Well, I've listened to a few previous episodes and I realised that your podcast asks questions more about the the human rather than just the career. So yeah, if that's what we're going to do, I, I'll, I'll sort of rewind. I'll give you my very potted history. So born in Australia, left Australia when I was two, uh, four years in Germany, where I was in German kindergarten, three years in Singapore, where I was in German school, came to England while I was eight or nine in, I'm going to date myself here, the late 80s. So I grew up in Cheshire. I went to school in the Midlands. When I was in sixth form, my parents moved to the Philippines. So although I stayed living and studying in England, so finishing off school and then my first degree, which is in Manchester University, I was spending my holidays in the tropics, but coming back. When I did my first degree in uh, psychology in Manchester, I moved to London. I worked in film and TV for two years, which was the passion I thought I had. When I realised quite how difficult it is to make a steady and predictable living from that and realising that I didn't quite have the talent to write scripts or direct, the the sort of my, my next step was a career in the law. So I did a I did a, an 18 month accelerated LLB and then uh, trained at did all of that, like you said, in, in City in London. Then I, I did my training contract, Field Fisher. Five years at Field Fisher. I did four years in house at, at uh, one of the world's largest reinsurance companies, not working in the reinsurance sector, but in technology commercial sort of area, which was the, you know, the tech department is where I qualified at Field Fisher. Then I had a year doing financial data licensing also in the city. So that's a total of about 11 years in the city. During that time in the background, my wife and I had spent a long time trying to start a family. It had finally happened, and but in the meantime, I had also lost both my parents, and it dawned on us that delaying life in the hope that you'll have a good retirement may not be the best sort of route forward, and I was not getting, you know, I was getting home for bath time once a week if I was lucky. So we made an extremely drastic choice. We 
decided we would leave London. We moved to Manila in the Philippines. We did this just around the time that Brexit had been decided. <laughs> so it was, uh, you know, felt like a good time to leave England. Sold our house in London, quit our jobs. We went to the Philippines with our 18-month-old, without jobs, without a place to stay, without a school, without a plan. <laughs> so it just so happened at that time, yeah, I, I was prepared potentially to leave the law, if that's what it took. But that was around the time that firms like Ignition and Quorum were sort of expanding their model and making it possible for lawyers to work remotely. So I managed to arrive, you know, in the Philippines with roles, working with English clients, with those law firms. Then I started working with firms as a consultant, uh, you know, just just sole lone wolf for, you know, a few places in London, a few places in Singapore and Australia. I had a handful of direct clients myself, and that was ticking along nicely. It was a little bit brutal in terms of covering many, many different time zones. And I was actually probably working longer then than I ever did at any point prior in the city. I then decided to join one of my clients. So that was Stone Step. They are a Swiss-based insurtech company doing business predominantly in Southeast Asia. That was very cool. A lot of fun. I was sole general counsel for a small company, but it was still quite complex and operating in a regulated area. Sort of set up a small team in the Philippines. I spent a lot of time in Malaysia. I would do very interesting stuff like go to Myanmar and Nepal and I'd be trying to sort of speak to the insurance regulators there, trying to explain that micro insurance is really for the benefit of their rural poor. And we can achieve this by deducting a few pence from their mobile phone top up. That was quite difficult. <laughs> In this concept to societies that, you know, are not used to things like taking, you know, making payment for a service you may never use. That was a lot of fun, great experience. A couple of years into that, I had an opportunity I couldn't refuse where, you know, I'd always wanted to found my own business. So I had a partner in California who ran his own venture capital firm. And we set up a boutique outsourcing, legal outsourcing company in the Philippines, where we trained Philippine lawyers to do venture capital, you know, Silicon Valley style venture capital work. That's what I was doing when COVID hit. Uh, COVID hit the Philippines extremely hard. No vaccines, no hospital spaces. I think it was the world, apart from one country, maybe Venezuela or Vatican, the longest lockdown yeah. in the world. It was militarized. It was one person out of the house at one time. It was 15 months of homeschooling our boy. We, you know, that, that had its challenges, obviously. Um, at the point when we were told, right, it's going to be another full academic year of homeschooling. And by the way, no vaccines yet. We thought, right, it's time to come back to the UK. So coming back to the UK, I was wondering whether or not to continue running the operation in the Philippines or look for something entirely new. It was at that point that I, without any mutual connections or, or, or any other warm introductions, I saw an ad placed by founder Tom Bowhills um, for, you know, someone to jump in on a really exciting project, building a new boutique law firm. And literally, first conversation we had, I understood that, um, what he had uh, devised was, for me, the most attractive way of practicing law. So I'm sure we're going to touch upon that a little bit later on. 
But that brought me back to England. And, you know, 18 months ago or so, that was a team of four of us. We are now at Founders Law, nudging, I think, in the new year with all our new arrivals coming soon, 23 lawyers. We've gone from, I don't know, a dozen or so clients in, in one niche industry sector to, I don't know, we're, we're, we're nudging 300 clients, I think, and I, at last count, 17 different sectors. Um, and I'm going to pause for breath now. <laughs> well, I think I can't argue that was a non-boring answer. I think there was a lot there from Australia to Germany to Singapore, the Philippines and everything in between from a sort of personal and professional perspective. There's a lot to, to sort of digest there. Um, but I want to talk about um, training because you, you trained in private practice and then went in-house. And so what differences did you experience working in private practice maybe versus to in-house and maybe some of these other models that you, you touched on as well? So, I mean, th there's, there's no doubt in my mind that there is, that, that private practice is an exceptional place to learn your craft. There are so many really experienced and inspirational lawyers. And if, if you spend enough time around them, you absorb, even by osmosis, so much. I felt I benefited from the training at Field Fisher hugely. In particular, I was attracted to, at that point, I understand they don't do it anymore. They had six training seats. And I've always been a generalist. And I've, I've always, I always want a, a huge breadth of experience. That's what sort of keeps me interested. So breadth of training, the people I was around, the clients that we had, all fantastic. For me, the reason I wanted to go in-house was I wanted to get closer to the client and I wanted, instead of jumping into a very narrow portion of, say, a transaction or, or just a, a narrow portion of a client's business, I wanted to see the full gamut of what they're facing. So this, this document that I helped draft, where does it fit in with the wider business and the plans? Was this accurate? Did it meet the client's needs? Lots of those questions were not necessarily answered when you're sort of in private practice. So I, that, that was the attraction. I loved private practice experience because you had such a breadth and, and, and different clients and things like that, but you never got to experience things from start to finish, at least the stage I was at. Maybe for your partner, you did. So that was the attraction for moving in-house. And the thing that I loved about being in-house is you have, we were a small team, we did not send a lot of matters out to external counsel and we dealt with highly complex matters from start to finish. And, you know, at a two, three PQE level, I was, you know, I did a 150 million pound multi-party, you know, complete tech refresh of us, of our, all of our core technology platforms, managing the, you know, the big five and, you know, systems integration and then different developers and all the IP matters and everything. And that was with me and I had complete ownership. And it was incredible. So, you know, two entirely different experiences, I think. But we can talk about why Founders Law model, in my view, marries the best of both of those. Because I also eventually found an issue with being, you know, in-house. Because ultimately, you start, you know, after a couple of years, you are retreading probably the same issues, same cast of characters. And, you know, growth becomes slightly 
slower. Yeah, no, and I think, you know, you gave some really good practical overviews there for people who might be thinking about private practice, might be thinking about in-house, but also noting that, you know, there are other potential avenues as the industry evolves. Time for a short break from the show. Are you looking for a way to get your firm working more efficiently and profitably while ensuring a better work-life balance for your team? Well, if you haven't considered our sponsor, Clio, I'm here to strongly recommend that you do. I absolutely love working with Clio. Not only is it the world's leading legal practice management and legal client relationship management software, it also has a really solid core mission to transform the legal experience for all, something I personally support. What sets Clio apart for me, it's their dedication to customer success and support. There are lots of legal softwares out there, but I know from talking to Clio users that their support offering is miles ahead of the rest with their 24-5 availability via email, in-app chat, and over the phone. Yes, you can actually call in and speak to someone. Clio is also the G2 crowd leader in legal practice management in comparison to 130 legal practice management softwares and has been for the last 14 consecutive quarters. G2 Crowd is the world's leading business solutions review website. You can check Clio's full list of features and pricing at www.clio.com forward slash legally dash speaking. That's www.clio.com forward slash legally dash speaking. Now back to the show. You know, we, we touched on the introduction. Obviously, you've been a counsel at Ignition Law and, and some work at Coram Legal. And I want to sort of stick because you have a very international profile. So let, let's dive into that. Let's just take Coram Legal, for example. You worked on a range of clients across um, Southeast Asia on commercial corporate legal matters. So, you know, what types of clients did you work alongside there? And maybe as a second part question, you know, obviously from working in the likes of sort of Hong Kong, Middle East, Southeast Asia, do you think it's become that part of the world is becoming a central hub for law firms to conduct business? So a few parts to that question. Hopefully I'll remember them. (laughs) (laughs) If not, I'll remind. (laughs) Types of clients, majority of the clients, you probably wouldn't be surprised to learn, are tech businesses of of some variety. You know, if there's a suffix tech attached to it, med tech, reg tech, insure tech, you name it. You know, I've, I've worked with those clients. So that has remained fairly constant no matter where I've worked. As for operating in Southeast Asia, I should point out that, for example, working in the Philippines, I was working from the Philippines, but with UK and US mainly clients. So they locally, they do not allow non-Filipinos to practice law, local law for local clients. So just to, you know, I wasn't working actually with Philippine clients. So, however, I think that there is a part to play for offshore solutions for the legal sector. This, I mean, it, it's it's nothing new, right? That that you've got um, offshore service centres. Traditionally, though, they've you know you might have, for example, Philippines had White and Case and Baker McKenzie, and they had not only back office function doing you know billing and admin and that kind of thing, but they had you know NDAs, for example, were sent out there, standardised, high volume, usually low complexity documents are just sent out there. I think what we had done there was was prove that it doesn't need to be you know, low complexity, low volume work, there is talent everywhere you look in the world. And I think 
people need to sort of overcome this trust deficit, which I, I weirdly COVID has massively helped with because people realise that you can work location agnostic and all of a sudden your talent pool is is so much wider. So I think that there is a future for looking abroad for support. And and of course, that's not forgetting the fact that you need local legal compliance and you need overview oversight from a locally qualified lawyer and, and all that kind of stuff. But I, I see that that is an opportunity for many companies. You don't have to be, you know, uh, uh, an Accenture and you don't need like oh, 2000 seats in order to make it worthwhile. Actually, you can have a small, nimble, kind of highly specialized service that will suit your needs and you can turn a small business into a 24 hour, you know, 24 seven, follow the sun kind of enterprise with amazing legal support in other jurisdictions. So that's my hope for the future. Did I answer the question? Above and beyond, above and beyond. So uh, as, as with all the questions thus far, so uh, yeah, really enjoying the uh, the conversation and uh, yeah, super educational. I want to stick with that piece because you have a wealth of experience as a in-house commercial counsel general counsel and consultant counsel, if I'm correct. So, you know, how has each counsel role differed? Because people listening to this might be a bit confused. Okay, well, I'll, I'll go through the full, all the variety of hats I've worn. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Private practice lawyer in a city firm. I've been a commercial and tech counsel in a small team within a regulated business. And then I've just been, you know, regular commercial lawyer inside a financial data licensing business. I've been a sole, like just sole consultant, I've been a sole general counsel. I've been a founder of a legal company. And now I'm a sort of, I'm a director helping to operate a law firm that is a hybrid model between, well, we are a law firm, so we are technically private practice, but we specialize in deploying our people in a very in-house flavor. So I've been, I've worn all the hats. I think I've, I've sat in every seat on the table so far. So um, what what are the differences? Private practice, You your colleagues are all lawyers. You have a huge amount of expertise to draw upon. And, uh, and you know, you're probably working on a wide variety of clients, although likely in a very narrow band of work. So you become you become a specialist, you become the brain surgeon rather than the GP in house as a general sort of general, not general counsel, but as a general sort of commercial tech person. You, it's much more that, you know, every day could spit up something new, you get a broad variety, you get a lot of different views across the business. And, you know, I did have some colleagues to draw upon, but we didn't have like, you know, um, gaggles of, of juniors to sort of give the work to. So you're still rolling up your sleeves and doing it. And there's a lot of different stuff, but you'd all kind of have your own workloads and you'd share it to some extent. But ultimately, if it landed with you, it was with you. Uh, as the name suggests, as a sole consultant, you are, it's eat what you kill. No one's going to pay you for holidays. No one's going to pay you <laughs> for time you spend working. Um, where I was, I was working UK time zone, Asian time zone and US time zone. I would sometimes be on calls at midnight, finish those. I'd be up at 6am for my next set of calls. And that might go on for three weeks, about, you know, five days out of seven. So that was reasonably brutal. But, you know, the good thing is you are entirely in control. You do have that direct relationship with the client and, and it does feel it does feel like you have complete ownership. Being a founder, you know, not doing the law, but, you know, sort of helping with legal matters and that kind of thing. But, but running a legal business, you start thinking like a law firm or how you charge and, and suddenly your focus becomes more on 
how the business operates, not the content of what people are doing on a day-to-day basis. And yeah, so I don't know, maybe those are the differences. Yeah, and there's a lot there. And it's it's really interesting to see how they, um, you know, some of the nuances or some of those differences as you've gone through your journey. But the key point is obviously that, you know, you've taken good experience and you've used that for whatever you've gone on to do next to complement your profile. And you've got a very good sort of internationalized, you know, wealth of legal experience, which you've used time and time again to kind of progress. And, you know, I just want to get back one step because before joining Founders Law, you were also a legal director of, of Tribe Wanted Limited. So again, just for folks wanting to learn more about what legal director life looks like, what were you getting involved with there? And yeah, what were some of your responsibilities? Well, that information, I think, has come from LinkedIn. So that was, I wasn't a legal director, I was a director. So this this was a very good friend of mine, Ben Keane, who's actually, I don't know if he was, we were at school together. He is a phenomenal human being and he's, he's just an original thinker. He came out with, there's a book and a TV series called Tribe Wanted. He set up a sort of experimental democracy in ecotourism in an island in Fiji and then Sierra Leone and a few other places where people could sort of be members and and go and visit and build, you know, eco-friendly kind of resorts and or you know places to stay, but things that were sustainable and taught trades to people locally to earn their living. But if you're a member of the community in the UK and you weren't there important decisions were still made, you know, they were made remotely. Everybody had a vote, right? Do we now build a well? Do we now, you know, build, you know, some other municipal structure? So um, that I was involved with that right at the very start of when community interest companies became a thing. So that was, you know, I helped sort of set that up and, you know, just just remained on the sidelines, really. So I wasn't running that on a day-to-day basis, but it was a really fun project. Sounds fascinating i have to say um and just whenever i hear things like fiji i'm like just thinking of beaches and you know <laughs> all of that good stuff and and we have to encourage dogs on the podcast as i'm a fan of otto all of my friends and everyone listens to the show so we are dog friendly so welcome dog but sticking with the career and journey for you we've touched on this but let's dig into it then because you are now director of founders law and we you've talked about how the, the firm has grown from three to 23 in a short period of time but you know what does the firm really stand for in terms of values and um how do you think it really separates from other service offerings out there because it's a competitive space, the legal world. It is, yeah, 100%. So what we realised was that there was a segment, business segment that was not being, we felt, adequately served. So in our case, that's high growth companies, usually in the technology space, not always, but but usually. They may have some funding, but reasonably limited. They might, might not be flush with cash, but they're running businesses that are reasonably complex. And they definitely need legal guidance to, to, to set that business up and get it running in a risk-free way. So traditionally speaking, what were their options? The areas that they were operating in meant it wasn't really stuff that high street firms would deal with. So those were out. So then you have the option, right, I'm going to hire a dedicated in-house counsel. That, you know, that in this day and age, especially, as, uh, as you've discussed on the podcast, um, can be a very expensive endeavor. You've got, you know, it's, it's, it's a fixed price on your, on your balance sheet, on your P&L. It's, you know, it's bonuses, it's equity, it's, you know, holiday pay, and it's, you, you can't scale that resource. So, it, you know, it's, it's quite a commitment there. You may, as well as not having the budget, you may not have the work volume to justify a full-time resource. 
So that was kind of traditionally one of the options. The other option being, well, let's go to a city law firm. Now, of course, hugely talented people, great skills, you know, amazing. Are they suitable for many small enterprises? Usually the budget means no, right? So for us, we wanted to find a way to service that sector, you know, while still remaining profitable, right? And we can do that because we were set up as a virtual first law firm from the very beginning, before it was a thing, before COVID, you know, we, we realized that, well, you know, why should location and office, why should that be important? So low cost base. We don't have legacy tech either, which, you know, is something that um, a lot of law firms have and, and can be very expensive. We don't have, you know, hugely expensive long-term leases in lovely glass-fronted buildings. And as we are so young, we don't have, you know, established partnerships where, you know, a lot has to go into keeping them happy. So traditionally, I'm, I'm not going to cast aspersions here. This is just how, you know, how things are. That means that all trickles down and reflects in the rates charged to clients. Now, if you don't have those, you know, kind of millstones around your neck, you have a lot of freedom in terms of how you price. So we can offer the same level of service and, and expertise at, you know, usually it's about 40% of the rate of a city firm. So for our clients, that's obviously huge, but none of that matters. If the price is right, but the skills aren't right, then, you know, you, you aren't adequately solving the problem. But luckily, I think as, as well as innovating on the model, it's our people that distinguish us. So the, the level of service that our people provide is, is astonishing. So um, that's really the key to the success. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, you know, the people that are the fabric of the firm and uh, what make people stand out to attract others. And I always keep saying this on the show as well. It's that human connection we're craving now as well with clients. And uh, yeah, not just being technically good at the job, but being really good at kind of building those uh, connections. So you've touched on this as well, but I want to talk a little bit more about Founders Law because you're proudly part of the Founders Forum group. So an event powered community and group of businesses designed to support entrepreneurs and Every stage of their journeys, which I knew about this earlier on in my career around <laughs> entrepreneurship. But can you tell us uh, about Founders Forum Group and you know some of the benefits of being part of it? Absolutely. So um, we started life as Kronos Law. So our our transition to Founders Law occurred sort of in the last six months. Um, we had been speaking to Founders Forum Group, who, as you say, so they, they, they started life as an events company founded by Brent Hoberman, who many people know was uh, lastminute.com and, and made.com. And, you know, he he saw the sort of ecosystem of support that existed in the US for startups, scale-ups, wanted to create something similar in the UK. So he very quickly built that into sort of the most recognizable premier event for that community. From that spun out Founders Factory, which is an accelerator and incubator and, and also invests in some of its companies. And from there, kind of the idea grew to grow a group that provided a, an ecosystem that supports younger companies and high growth companies in all of the stages of their sort of growth. So to the point now that we have, yeah, well, we sort of have in the wider family under the umbrella we also have first minute capital who venture capital arm we've got you know founders keepers who do recruitment we've got founders makers who are doing sort of creative assistance we've got us doing legal services 
we want to basically create this supportive ecosystem that can help every aspect of of a young company's sort of trajectory and we you know um, founders forum took you know strategic investment in us we're, we're still independent so actually still the vast majority of our clients are outside the group but we recognized in our conversations during the course of the year that we're so strongly aligned in how we think about you know servicing this industry sector because they just that they believe that you know all rising tides lifts all boats right so we're all we're not we're not trying to compete we're trying to just do the best we can for the community writ large so we're a, we're a sort of like win-win focused relationship focused and we just want everybody to get the best possible service that they can and they have hundreds of companies in their first of all direct investment portfolio and then thousands in the wider community all of whom at some point need access to lawyers and for them it made sense well let's you know these guys think the way we do they care about the same things that we do so you know it made perfect sense really for us to to go in together yeah and there's so many things there that resonate with me and that I'm passionate about the power of community you know we is greater than me you know coming together to help others all of that great stuff so um yeah it sounds fascinating and encourage people to um, to learn more about that last year you and your colleagues took part in a charity event and you're raising money for for mental health and cancer and growing moustaches i believe tell us tell us more about that well i mean first of all it's it's a wonderful sort of group bonding exercise for obviously for the men in the company so you know apologies you know, i wish it could be a little bit more inclusive yes but i think i think really it's illustrative of how we want to sort of you know what we value as a firm which is you know our people quality of life work-life balance you know mental health all comes into it so so you know it was it was a bit of a bonding experience to do it but i i think it's an outward indication that we care we are not simply you know we want to create a, a place for our lawyers to build careers that they you know where where they're happy that go that where we're listening to what they want out of their careers, try to help them achieve whatever they want to do and be flexible in that way. And I know that sounds tangential to, you know, growing moustaches, but it's all sort of in there in the mix of how we sort of feel about what a, what a workplace ought to be. Absolutely. Absolutely makes sense. And um, yeah, I love it. And I I absolutely want to echo what you said about sort of, you know, inclusivity as well. It's super, super important. And just, you know, belonging, I think it's so important as well when it comes to the workplace. So with regards to, we've talked a lot about your career and titles and, you know, the job, but also you've done lots of extracurricular. And and one of the things I wanted to quickly touch on as well is the, the Oxford FinTech programme. Um, so would you mind sharing a bit more about that course and, you know, what, how you found it and, you know, would you encourage others to, to think about it if they're in your world? So uh, we started off as a fintech specialist firm because yeah. our founder, Tom Bohills, came from that world. And, and you know, that is actually an extremely, you know, it, it, it's a niche and it's extremely hard to find the right lawyers to work on those kind of things. So our first handful of anchor clients were all in the fintech space. I'd had very limited exposure to fintech and, and I wanted to learn more. And our firm offers, you know, we, we offer training courses that are, you know, and if, if it's vaguely relevant to what you do at work, we will fund that training. So this came up, obviously, an incredible institution. And I think as a 
standalone fintech sort of certification. It's one of the sort of most recognized one in the industry. So I did this, God, I can't remember, was, you know, it was not this summer gone, the one prior. And I can't remember, it was six weeks or two months. I'm, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It did add, <laughs> did extend my working days by some degree. But what it did manage to do is it gave me a really great grounding in the principles of fintech and the underlying financial systems and how, you know, you know, where, you know, helps with horizon scanning, you know, what, what's happening in the future and where we should be heading. What are the problems systemically that need to be addressed? So for me, it was an incredible sort of overview of that world. Like I'm, I'm not an expert by any stretch, but I, I now feel much more conversant in the major issues. Yeah, no, and I think it's, it's it's a good message there as well. You know, if you are going to take on these things, you have to accept, particularly if you're working, you know, it is going to master the workload, but equally the benefits you get in the long run, super helpful. So before we look to to, to wrap up, uh, James, I mean, you've had a, a really wide ranging career, an international career, and, you know, lots of wonderful experiences. But take yourself back to the start of the journey and thinking of those maybe looking at starting out a career in the law, or maybe looking to try and reignite their career in the law, what advice would you give to them? Think carefully about what you find interesting. I would advise against, you know, some people might um, take a job just because it's in the law. And, you know, ultimately, I think that path, it might work for some. But generally speaking, if you end up falling into something just for the sake of being in a certain profession, if you fast forward four years plus, you'll find yourself in a place where, you know, you're probably not that happy. So I would try to, if you can, really understand what makes you tick and then and then just go for it. Uh, and, and also realize that rejection and failure along the way is par for the course. I don't know anyone that hasn't experienced that. I've experienced tons. Uh, and, you know, you've had loads of guests. I've been listening recently to the podcast. You have loads of guests. It's like, oh, yeah, I struggled to get a training contract. I had to paralegal for years before I did it. And all these things. Don't be discouraged by the obstacles in your way. The routes to a rewarding career in the law now are more varied than they ever have been. So your chance is better now. And the other thing is there's ancillary careers, which are just as exciting. So going into legal tech, for example, being a legal tech engineer, or even, you know, you could you could be a, a manager of a law firm or, or chief of staff at a law firm or something like with a legal grounding. So many other things you can do in the law that controversially might be more interesting than actually being a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you raised so many great points, you know, particularly about, you know, how the industry has evolved. I still think it's got a long way to go. But I think, you know, in terms of all these different options and routes, and you're absolutely right. Don't do what people tell you to do. Do what makes you happy. I think it's really, really important because nobody knows yourself more than yourself. And I think, you know, just because generations gone past have gone down a certain path, that doesn't mean it has to be the path to you because things change. Different opportunities arrive. And you're absolutely right. Rejection is just redirection. And we're going to finish with the quote that I love by Churchill because it's so, so true about success is not final. Failure is not fatal. It is the courage to continue that counts. And I think if you keep with that facet of not giving up, you will absolutely have a wonderful career like the wonderful James. So James, I'm sure our listeners are going to want to know more. So if they do, they want to know more about the founders law or what's the best way for them to contact you, feel free to shout out any social media handles.
handles, any websites. We'll also share them with this special episode too. Well, we are just at uh, founders-law.co.uk on the web. And you can, if you just type in Founders Law into LinkedIn, you'll find us there as well. We will be getting a marketing manager on board soon. So we'll be, we'll be appearing on other social media networks at the mo- uh, very soon. But at the moment, I think scant content there. There we go. Well, thank you so, so much, James, for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on. And from all of us on the Legally Speaking podcast, wishing you lots of continued success. But for now, over and out. Thanks a lot, Rob. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. If you like the content here, why not check out our world-leading content and collaboration hub, the Legally Speaking Club, over on Discord. Go to our website, www.legallyspeakingpodcast.com, for the link to join our community there. Over and out.